0: Welcome to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. I'm your host, Sean Finnegan. What do you do when everything is stripped away? You find out who you really are. In this sermon, you'll see what happened in ancient Judah when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, ultimately resulting in the destruction of the city, the embarrassment and shame of being defeated by a foreign power and ultimately exile to a foreign nation. This, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, is the chief trauma of the entire Old Testament, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire. And I'm convinced that although our times today, I believe, at least I'll speak for myself, can't really compare to the level of suffering these people went through, their experience has much to teach us about hope in dark times. And we've been going through dark times in this country and in many of our lives suffering a lot in different ways from different kinds of situations that are going on. And the question is how can we have hope in the midst of suffering? And I so I pray that this message here that it will help you consider how this incident in biblical history will set an example for you to say, through your hardest suffering, God is enough. God is enough. Even if everything falls away, even if I lose everything that is dear to me, everyone that is dear to me, God is enough. I can get through this. And I hope this message will do that for you today. Here now is episode 387, God is Enough. Babylon comes against Judah in the reign of Jehoiachin, who reigned for three months, did evil before God, and he was attacked by the, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, came and attacked the city. He besieged it. He surrounded it. it last, the siege lasted less than three months. It wasn't very long. And they surrendered, and it was just a horrible time. Thousands got deported. Look at this description. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. This is, this is because of the incompetence of these kings, right? Because they, they refused to serve God, so now the wrath is coming, the judgment is coming. And so Nebuchadnezzar conquers and he carries away from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. I mean, just imagine how that broke the heart of the Israelites to see the, the gold and the silver from Jericho and from all these other places that they had collected over all the centuries that they had dedicated to God, that they had made into holy vessels to be used in the worship of God, to see some pagan king come in there and strip those away just as if they're booty, just as if they're spoil, something to be plundered, some some knick-knack to put on a shelf. How would that make you feel? all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house and he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, it's like hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Now tell me that's not a defeat. That is a significant defeat. That's Jehoiachin, the second-to-last king of Judah, faces this situation. He himself gets carried away, and he ends up living in Babylon. So once all the rich people are gone out of the land, the poor people inherit whatever is left, right? So they're living in the the big houses in Jerusalem. They move in. People from the surrounding region, over the next 11 years, they, they come to Jerusalem. They repopulate the city. They, you know, assume the different positions that were, you know, vacated when these people left. And we finally get to Zedekiah. You know, the Babylonians, they put Zedekiah in charge. They said, look, you be king for us, you pay the taxes, you'll be all right. Zedekiah's like, all right. And then after a little while, he's like, pay the taxes, I ain't paying no taxes. And he he decides that he's going to rebel against the Babylonian empire. And the city gets besieged again. You can read all about this in all its depressing detail in the book of Jeremiah. You know, If you're, looking for, if you're like really happy and you're like, man, I just need something to bring me down, read Jeremiah. <laughs> read Jeremiah. It'll help you out. Because Jeremiah was there during Josiah. He was there during the kings following him right up until Zedekiah. Right? And that's easy to remember. Zedekiah is a Z. It's the last letter. It's the last king. All right? So Zedekiah... He was just so bad. He was so bad. The people and the king, they just didn't want Yahweh. They just didn't want the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be their God. They didn't want him. So they, uh, they just would serve these idols, and in the end, it resulted in the city getting besieged again. I wonder if you know anything about siege warfare. Uh, siege warfare is nasty. It's not like our wars It's a really brutal thing to go through, and I want to just describe it to you a little bit because our cities don't have walls because we have cannons, we have airplanes, we have rockets that don't even need an airplane. They just go right over, right? So having walls in our day is sort of like a luxury most cities aren't going to spend money on, right? Because they don't actually protect you. But in the ancient times, walls did protect you, and a wall was a big deal. If you had a nice big wall, there's no gunpowder invented yet. They didn't even have those cool Roman catapults yet. I mean, what what is somebody going to do if they come up against a 5-foot, a 10-foot thick wall? And if it's tall enough, you can't even throw something over it if it's a tall enough wall, right? I mean, walls were very effective, and Jerusalem was surrounded by a wall. And so, as the Babylonians came through city by city till they get to the capital city, all the different people would flee to Jerusalem because it has a big wall. Does that make sense? And so, Jerusalem swells in its population. Everybody knows what's about to happen. The Babylonians are coming, they have conquered all the other nations. We're one of the few that's ever not been conquered yet, and now they're coming for us. They've already taken away all of our men of valor, all of our smiths, all of our leadership, our primary leadership. That was 11 years ago. But here they're coming again, and the only, the only hope we have is to wait them out. That's our only hope, is to wait them out. Because Jerusalem had its own water supply, It had its own water supply into the city. Hezekiah had dug a tunnel, and that tunnel brought water into the city. And so within Jerusalem, you could get water without leaving the walls. So that's a huge advantage. And they could stockpile food. And as people would come in, lodging would start to be difficult, right? As people fled to the city you know, maybe you would give your guest room or whatever kind of extra space you had, but then another person comes, and then another person, and they, they, maybe they start building makeshift lodging everywhere on the roofs of the houses because they were flat, and in, in the uh, alleyways, and everywhere that you could find, there's, there's somebody camping out, hoping to ride out this thing. Look at Second Kings 25, verse 1. It says, Now in the ninth year of his reign, On the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall around it. you imagine that? So you have a city, you have a wall around the city. Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army and builds a wall around the wall so that you can't leave. And that that creates a no-man's land between the two walls, the city wall and then the makeshift wall he made around it. If anybody gets caught in there, they're dead. How are you going to get food? How are you going to get wood? You can't. You have to stay in the city. Because as soon as you go outside the city, they've got you surrounded. They're guarding all the gates. And what's their angle? Starve you out. Sanctions, right? Starve you out until you give up. Until you say, all right, just conquer us because we're dead anyhow. Right? And so this whole, th- this whole thing begins. It is a nasty, nasty military strategy. And so they're, they're in there in the city and they're doing all right. You know, They probably had stockpile food supplies because they had already been sieged not too long before this. And they lasted a little while. Uh, but, you know, you, it, it, what are they eating? They're eating wheat. They're eating barley. They're eating lentils, millet, spelt, things like that. Have you ever tried to eat a bean? That wasn't cooked. It's hard. It's hard to eat. A, it's hard for our bodies to di- digest any kind of grains or, or beans like that that are not cooked. So what you need, if you're gonna if you're gonna survive, right? You have a, and they came in the winter, so they're they're subsisting on these beans, legumes, grains, things like that that can be stored without refrigeration. And what you need is you need to you need to make a fire and then boil some water, right, and and cook the beans, and cook the grains, cook the oatmeal, right? To start a fire, you need what? You need wood, right? So every day, you get up, you leave your house, and you go scavenging for wood. Every day, you go looking around for wood, and your goal is to find some little sticks of wood that you can then bring together and make a fire. And every day it gets harder and harder and harder because you're in a city and everyone else is doing the same thing. And so over time, it gets hard to, to light your fire to cook your food. And so then you start using furniture, you start use, You start pillaging. You know, maybe there's a public building downtown. that has got like a wooden column on it. And now people are hacking it away to use that to start the fire. I mean, we're talking about a desperate people because this wasn't a day. This wasn't a week. This wasn't even a month. It went on month after month after month. And then the food supply itself starts to run out. Whatever you have starts to run out. So now what people are going to do is they're, is they're going to sell their valuables that Family heirloom that you would never sell. People are willing to sell it for some bread. And then you have disease, right? In a crowded city where you don't have adequate sanitation systems and and you have all these people, where are you going to put the garbage? You know, you have disease that starts to spread. Hunger and disease. We have a description of this from Lamentations chapter 1, verse 11. It says, All her people groan seeking bread. Can you imagine that? A city full of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And every day they wake up and they're just like, If I can just find bread for my family, I'll, I'll, I'll consider today a victory. they all groan. They have given their precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. After you sell all your valuables, how do you get food then? Well, you start begging for food. You say, hey, you know, we've been neighbors for generations. You know, do you have any extra food you can give me? And your neighbor says, no, I don't. If I give you the food I have, we'll die. Sorry. We don't have enough to share. And then it comes to stealing. Stealing. Morals break down. The hungrier you get, the, the fewer morals you, you keep to, typically. And as, as people see their children getting skinnier and skinnier, and the babies and the older folks, and, and people start stealing. Start stealing bread. Six months in, you're in this kind of a situation. Seven months pass. Eight, nine months, ten months. The first year passes. You've not left the walls of your city For a year, for 12 months, it's winter again, but we didn't go out and harvest the crops this year. Nobody planted this year because in the spring we were stuck in this city. So it gets bad. And the kids, the kids are the ones that suffer the most. Lamentations 2.11 says, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out. On the earth, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is the grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. I mean, I just... It's it's hard for me to to grasp this myself, much less communicate it to you. We're talking about a, a situation that is worse it's like a genocidal trauma we're talking about here. I, I'm a parent. I have kids. You know, to see my kids and, they, and the you know, kids, they don't know what's going on. They don't understand politics. They don't understand the Babylonians are coming. They they're just like, where's the where's the grain and the wine? Where's the grain? You know, and those kids, they get hungry. And, 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 and they're looking at, they, I don't understand. And, they, and they're, they're limping around like a wounded person. You know, they're just limping around. And these, these poor kids, you know, uh, they don't have uh, as much of a reserve as, as we do uh, to, to last. And so what ends up happening over the course of that first year is, is people start dying, People start dying because it lasts more than a year. It goes to the 13th month, the 14th month, the 15th month, the 16th month. And the elderly, the sick, and the children start to die. They start to die. And at first, you bury the dead, right? Because that's the honorable thing to do. But after a while, people are dying every day. What are you going to do with them? Digging a big ditch? I mean, that takes all these calories. You don't have any food. I mean, what do you so you throw them over the wall. You just throw the dead over the wall, and and it, and it smells. They run out of all wood in the city, and so they start cooking it over cow manure and human feces that's been dried out, which to this day, I looked it up, to this day some people use this in some parts of the world. It doesn't smell great, I can tell you that much. But can you imagine the situation where you're saving your excrement, because it's the only, and you're drying it out. You're carefully drying it out because it's the only way you can light the fire to cook the one bean that you found that day for your family. I mean, this is this is the worst possible uh, city to be in at this time, and yet it gets worse. As more die, they they just you know, people's corpses are rotting. I mean, it's just this awful scene, and it lasts for eighteen months. Eighteen months is how long it lasts. And eventually people start, they turn to cannibalism. That's what they did. That's what they did. They start eating the dead because there's no food and you're going to die and they're dead. So they turn to cannibalism. And we get this staggering uh, remark from Lamentations 4. It says, their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered, it has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children, they became food for them. I mean, is there something more traumatizing than that? Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look with whom you have dealt thus. Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? This is what happened in the city. This is the, the judgment of God was to send the Babylonians, right? But the people, they would not listen to Him. God had a man on the inside, Jeremiah. He's there the whole time. Jeremiah's message was, "Surrender." That was his message. And the people are like, "No, another day, and, and some other nation will call the Babylonians away, and we'll be all right. We just need another day. And the people who are making the decisions have access to the stockpiles of food. Whereas the, the, the common folks are starving, they're shriveled. I mean, have you ever been hungry before? Have you ever gone a day without food? You know what it feels like? And, and as, as sleep takes over and there's, there's no work and pillaging and everything breaks down and people are eating their own children. Finally, finally... The city is broken. Look at verse 4. 2 Kings 25 verse 4. Then the city was broken into. And all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were all around the city. What a bunch of cowards, huh? They, they refused to give up that city. 18 months till everybody's dying and eating each other. And then when they run out of food, what do they do? They get on their horses. How were their horses alive? How were their horses alive? They fed their horses, the king and his men. They fed their horses. Oh, yeah. Because when it came down to it, when they were out of food, they ran away. They broke through the city wall, they broke through that other wall, and they ran away right into the desert. They had an exit strategy and ditched everyone else behind. This is the quality of leadership that people had at this time. And they went by the way of the Arabah, which is a desert. Verse 5, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. We have exact opposite Jericho experience. Right? Rather than walking around a city and shouting, what do we have now? The king and his little entourage trying to abandon ship on their horses and not trusting in God at all. And what happens? The Babylonians overtake them. Verse 6, Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters, and brought him to Babylon. I mean, that's trauma too. Just imagine that. Anybody losing their kids, having their kids killed in front of them, would just be the, the worst thing ever, right? But this guy is the king. He's the Davidic king. His firstborn son is the hope of the future of the whole nation. It's not just like a normal kid. This is the prince. The Babylonians know that, so they kill the prince right in front of him. Boom. It's done. The dream's over. And then they put out his eyes, so it's the last thing Zedekiah ever sees. Verse 8 there. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon... Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire, so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. That's it. At that point, they burn the temple. They uh, kill anybody that stands in their way. Everyone else they're going to capture. They're going to deport them. And they're taking everything. They're destroying the city. It's not not like another time where maybe they surrendered or something like that. This time is no surrender. This time is we're teaching you a lesson, Jerusalem. We're teaching you people a lesson so that everyone who hears about this will know not to do this to us, not to resist the Babylonians. They tear down the walls to the city. They burn the temple. They burn the king's house. Any nice house within the city, they burn. The city is disfigured. The city is no more. It's not a city. And it doesn't have a wall anymore, it's completely demolished. One of the darkest days in the history of the people of God. Uh, Look at verse 11 there. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. Can you imagine that march? Those few thousands who survived, who saw it all, marching away from Jerusalem towards this foreign country that's miles and miles, hundreds of miles away. They're going to march them all the way back to Babylon and settle them as a refugee camp over there so that they don't grow an attachment to the land and raise up another army and, and do this whole resistance thing again. This is the exile. The exile. Psalm 137 talks about the exile and what it was like. This is a painting of the exile's and they're at a river but it's a river in babylon it's not a river in judah anymore it's not the jordan river it's it's a it's a foreign river in a foreign land they've lost everything you know if, if this church burns down we'll build another church or or we'll meet somewhere else or we'll figure something out if the temple burns down at this period that's the only way god is properly worshiped according to the sacrificial system in place. You don't worship Yahweh anymore. You cannot worship. Imagine that. They literally could not worship anymore. Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded us Songs in our tormentor's mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Yeah, didn't you guys have some music back in Zion, and Jerusalem? Didn't you worship your God? Why don't you sing one of those songs for us? That'd be really nice. He said, we can't do that. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We can't sing Yahweh's song here. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Yahweh, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. While the Babylonians are destroying Jerusalem, the Edomites are standing there saying, yeah, burn, burn. And and the, the psalmist here is saying, God, remember that, how they did that to us. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's pain right there. Can you imagine seeing that scene once they break through the city wall and they see a baby and they dash the baby against the rock? I mean, this is the darkest period there is. And Turn with me to Lamentations. Everything is lost. It's all gone. There are no more festivals. You're kicked out of the land. There's no more worship. There's no more Abraham's land. God's promise to Abraham is now broken. There's no more David's king. God's promise to David seems like it's broken too. There's no king. Everything's broken. And the crazy thing is, nobody was deluded among the Israelites. Nobody was deluded as to why this happened because God had a prophet in exile called Ezekiel saying, look, don't you think this is because their gods are more powerful? No, this is your own God doing it to you because of your idolatry, because of the way you treated the poor, because of your injustice. It's, it's, it's Yahweh punishing you. It's not, the, it's not the other gods. It's not The, ba- the Babylonians are like a, a, a tool in God's hand. That's what Ezekiel's saying. You have Jeremiah in the city of Jerusalem itself saying, Just surrender. This is God's plan. He's doing this because you won't stop cheating on him. That's what Jeremiah's message is. Then you have Brother Daniel. He's over here in the, the, the capital of the city during the same period right, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and, and they're standing firm, and they're doing what they can in that time. God has his people spread all around so that nobody gets confused about what the point is. The point is, God has sent this judgment. So, I mean, that almost, like, makes it worse, right? You can't turn to God and be like, God, please don't send the judgment. Like, he's sending the judgment. You're tasting of the judgment of the wrath of God. Lamentations 3, 14, says, I have become a laughingstock to all my people. Lamentations is like the most depressing book ever because it's just like sad songs about how the city got destroyed. I mean, I've already read you some quotes from it. I mean, it's just so, so the pits. Um, but in the middle of Lamentations... At the heart of the book, we find chapter 3, verse 14. It says, I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. That's a low place. I have forgotten happiness. I don't even remember what happiness was. This is somebody that was in the city, somebody that saw the whole thing. I've forgotten happiness. I can't smile. So I say, My strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood, and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And then, out of nowhere, we find verse 21. Out of all the depression, all of the sadness, justified depression, you find verse 21. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. What? What? You have hope? You don't have hope. There's nothing to be hopeful about. You're in exile living in a foreign land with a foreign language, with foreign gods. There is no city to go back to. It's gone. All of it's gone. What do you mean you have hope? There is no hope. Hope is dead. He says he has hope. Therefore, I have hope. What does he recall to? What is this verse twenty-one? Therefore, I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Yahweh's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His steadfast love does not stop. He has a steadfastness. He has a faithfulness. In the Hebrew, it's called Chesed, and it does not quit. No matter how bad his people are, no matter what judgment comes down the pipeline, he has a commitment to his people. His steadfast love for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. Look, if this person, having gone through everything that we've been talking about, siege warfare, those horrible kings, exile, all of it. If this person having gone through all of that, having seen the horror, can have hope, then so can you. Then so can you. Because I bet even even as bad as the things that, that bad things have happened to you, it's not that bad. I bet it's not that bad. And if he can have hope in the midst of that kind of trauma, of that kind of horror, then so can we and so can we and where does he find his hope does he look at you know his own potential for greatness (laughs) you know i mean where do you find hope in the midst of that everything's they have different trees in babylon i mean everything's different the 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 geography is different everybody's worshiping these other gods right and in the midst of that he says i have hope because i know you he says i know you Your steadfast love does not quit. You have not given up on us. I know you're there. He says, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, and this is the key to everything. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. He has a perspective of God that says, God is my portion. God is all I need. Everything else, if I lose my legs, I still have God. If I lose my job, I still have God. If I lose my kids to hunger, I still have Yahweh. He is my portion. And this is what he says, therefore, I have hope in him. If you ground your hope in what God does for you, or is promised to do for you, or some other idea about what God owes you, it will fail. It has to be grounded in God himself. But if you can get to a point in your own soul where you experience God to such a degree, you realize his character, you understand who he is to such a degree, that he is enough. There's nothing anybody can do to take that away from you. And I say that not based on an abstract idea, but based on the words of somebody that had everything taken away and he still had hope. He still had hope because he rooted it in God. Let's close in Psalm 73. I think if you know God, if you really know God, if you've really experienced God, God is not an apathetic judge. He's not an abstract principle. He's a passionate lover and He woos you, and He chases you, and He wants you, and when you finally turn it in and say, that's enough of me, I'm I'm done doing this my way, I reach out to God in faith, I accept His love, and you experience that forgiveness, and you truly experience the love of God, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't experienced that yet, why not this weekend? Why not cry out to Him this weekend? where you can really, truly get to know God. Because once you truly get to know God, you really don't need anything else. Everything else is great. I'm not saying you're going to go on a mountain and just be by yourself. You could do that if you want. But my point is, you don't need anything else because He is enough. And if he is enough, then you're going to be all right, even if the city fails, even if the country fails, even if your job fails, even if your family fails, even if your friends turn you in and say to you, I don't like you anymore. You're an idiot. <laughs> friends do that. <laughs> even if your spouse cheats on you or, or your, your, your dog dies or whatever stock market crashes, Whatever. Whatever it is, you get pushed out of the business you started. Whatever it is, if Yahweh is your portion, you can still have hope in the midst of that. And that is the secret. And if you can get that, if you can wrap your mind around that, you're going to be stable. This is where I want to close. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-five: Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. This is a psalmist who gets it. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion portion forever. This is somebody that is rooted in the reality that God is his inheritance. What do you think the kingdom is all about? We get God. He gets us. Everything, all the stuff that gets in the way gets cleared out so that he can have that relationship with us unimpeded. And it's not just you, it's us. It's all of us. He wants a people. And the psalmist here is saying, God is my strength. Everything else may fail. I may lose it all, but God is my strength and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... The nearness of God is my good. Can you get to that point where you realize that in your heart? That the nearness of God is your good. If you can get there, you can say, I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of your works. He's all you need. He is all you need. And if He's all you need and you, and you get a hold of God, the God who loves so much that He gave His Son for you, You're going to be okay no matter if you end up in that fancy house or if you end up in a ditch in a foreign country persecuted because you're a missionary. Regardless of whatever situation you end up in, you're going to be okay. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to experience your love, to truly know you. That you are a God who loves. You are a God who executes justice. You are a God who is holy, and you are merciful. And yet, even though we can't understand how all these different characteristics can work at once, you embody them. Father, I pray that if there's someone in here tonight that has not come to know you, pray that you would open their heart, because you are all we need. We pray this, and we thank you for your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changes not thy comfort. faithfulness grace Oh,
0: Hope you don't mind me including the prayer and the song at the end there. We don't usually do that for these episodes, but I thought really Victor Gluckin did such a great job singing that song and leading the congregation and the words of great is thy faithfulness perfectly fit with that text in Lamentations 3 written at the very bottom of the valley of the suffering of the people of God and the boldness, the audacity of that hope really shines through in that song. So I hope that blessed you. That's it for today. If you'd like to leave a comment or a question on this episode, come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 387, God is Enough. We'd love to hear any feedback from you. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do it on the website as well. We'll catch you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.